I'm going to read from Matthew's Gospel and chapter 5, first book of the New Testament. We're looking into the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5, and which is the most concentrated set of teaching that we have from the lips of Jesus Christ in the entire Gospels. And I'm going to read to you from verse 38 down to the end of the chapter, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And if you have your Bible open, please keep it open. I'm going to refer back to those verses. Matthew 5 has a series of six statements that follow a sort of formula where where Jesus begins by saying, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes either the Old Testament scriptures or an interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he says, but I say unto you, and he adds and sometimes appears to change some of those things. But what Jesus is doing in every instance is going behind the effect to the cause, to the reason. So, for instance, when he says, you shall not murder, you heard it said, you shall not murder, I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, anger is the cause of murder. You've heard it said, you must not commit adultery, I say to you, if you lust after a woman, lust is the cause of adultery. You've heard it said, if you divorce your wife, Give her a certificate. And he says, no, no, no. Your commitment is a commitment. And he explains that. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Then he said, you've heard it said, don't break your oaths. But I say unto you, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything more is an expression of the corruption of your heart. And we talked about that, the need for truth. And then these last two I'm going to put together. The first is about... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what they had heard. In other words, it's about justice, about revenge. The second is about love your neighbor and hate your enemy. How you deal with your enemy and those who don't like you. And there's a clear progression from the first one to the second. And I'm calling as a title, Christians and Justice and Love. The first thing we'll talk about is from verse 38 to 42, the first section, which is about law and justice. Now, there's a a difficulty here when we first read this, because when Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and then he says, but I tell you, and seems to change that, he is actually quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, where in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy, 
a similar kind of statement is made in each case. Let me read you as one example, Exodus 21, verse 23, where Moses talks about people who are squabbling with one another, and then he says, if there's serious injury, you ought to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, and similar things are said, Leviticus 24 Deuteronomy 19. But now Jesus apparently says, no, do not do that, rather do the opposite. Do not resist an evil person. And more than that, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one and let them strike you on that cheek. If somebody sues you for your tunic, don't just let him have your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If somebody forced you to go one mile, go two And these verses have inevitably been controversial in various ways. These verses are are used for a Christian doctrine of pacifism, that is of non-violence, you don't resist an evil person. And of course there has been division amongst Christians on this issue, but this passage in the Sermon on the Mount played a part in the argument for pacifism. Not least, verse 39 Do not resist an evil person. And verse 43, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now I'm going to discuss the pacifist arguments, nor to dismiss pacifism, but it is very important, and this is a classic case where it is very important to interpret Scripture in its context. We can't just take a a text, a a, a sentence, and, and interpret it outside of the context in which it is found. And I want to ask two questions. First question, what did Moses mean when he said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, etc.? Second question, what did Jesus mean when he actually challenged that here in Matthew 5? Well, when you read the context of the statements in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy it becomes fairly obvious what the meaning is, because in that context, Moses is writing about justice and the law courts in the nation of Israel. Part of the law was devoted to the civil governance of Israel. And uh, the question, how is a nation to be governed? What are the principles that address crime and punishment are all part of what is involved here. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, let me read you these verses where it describes how a law court is to operate. And Moses writes, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now that section clearly is addressing how law court is to operate in Israel. 
And it says one witness is not enough. You've got to have a minimum of two, preferably three at least, witnesses in order to convict a person. The judge, he says there, must make a thorough investigation. Don't go on hearsay, make a thorough investigation. And the punishment must have two ingredients. First, it must equal the crime. That's why he says, you know, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the second thing the punishment must do is it must serve as a deterrent to frighten others from committing similar crimes. So he says in verse 20, the rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. It's designed to instill fear in other people to prevent them from actually committing a similar crime. Now that's the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 19. In Exodus 21, he talks there about personal injuries if men are fighting and injure each other. He says in verse 24 of Exodus 21, uh, if there's serious injury, you ought to take life for life, eye for eye, foot for foot, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, etc. Leviticus 24 talks about the law courts. Again, the same thing, that if anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he's injured the other, so he too is to be injured. Therefore, the context is very plain. The law courts in Israel, were to administer justice and the punishment was to be equal to the crime, not greater than the crime, not lesser than the crime, equal to the crime. That's what Moses was writing about. Any civilized society must have its judicial structures that cause crime to be addressed and responded to. So what then is the problem that Jesus addresses here in Matthew 5 when he seems to change that. Well, the problem that he addresses is also very plain, and that is that people were taking those statements from Moses and taking the law into their own hands. So if you hit me, I hit you back. And Jesus said, no, that is not what that is teaching. You do not take the law into your own hands. You do not take personal vengeance. What you do do is bring the law into operation if somebody unjustly attacks you in some way. And it is the right and response of the law courts to then sentence in such a way the punishment equals the crime. But you don't take this into your own hands. There was a story of a well-known Irish evangelist some years ago. He used to travel around conducting tent missions, set up a big tent, and people would come in, he'd preach to them. He had been a boxer before he became a Christian. And in one town, he was setting up his tent with with some other folks helping him. And when the tent was set up, some locals came along, began to heckle and and mock him, and they wanted to drive him out of the town. And uh, one of the guys, when the hecklers came up to this evangelist and suddenly pulled back his thick, fist and thumped him in the face and knocked this guy over. So he got up and people, what's going to happen now? And he walked back to the man who hit him on the right cheek and he turned his face like this and the guy thumped him again, knocked him down again. He got up, took off his jacket, rolled up his sleeves and said, the Lord has given me no further instructions. Pang! And he <laughs> apparently beat the guy up. <laughs> 
Only Irish preachers could get away with that. (laughs) But actually what Jesus is saying here is don't take the law into your own hands. You have a similar situation, almost identical in Romans chapter 12 and 13. In Romans 12 verse 17, it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, if you take that sentence out of context, put on a text, put on the wall, don't repay evil for evil, what that means is let people get away with everything. Sounds like that, doesn't it? But if you read on five verses later, in chapter 13, verse 1 says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. And then verse 3 says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. If you want to be free from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Now, you've got to take that whole section together. Do not repay evil for evil, but you make sure you have a healthy fear of authorities because they are God's agent carrying the sword that God has given them to punish the wrongdoer. But don't you repay evil for evil. Don't you take this into your own hands. You see, do we believe in justice? The answer is yes. Do we believe in law courts? The answer is yes. Do we believe in the legitimacy of a police force? The answer is yes. Do we believe in the legitimacy of the military? Unfortunately, yes. But do we believe in vigilantes taking the law into their own hands? The answer is no. Do we believe that terrorism, that is illegal means of aggression, is a, is a right way to correct wrongs? The answer is no. And that is what Jesus is addressing here. There are rules of justice laid down which are God-ordained, but does not include me taking the law into my own hands and getting vengeance. And here is the big, tough challenge that comes out of this that we can't escape. And I will show you why in a moment. That our attitude to those who commit crimes against us, or those who endanger our society, or those who act destructively, is not just a legal one, though we uphold the legal principles and forces But the attitude that should characterize us is love towards such people. That is what the next section is about, verse 43 down to verse 47. I called the first section being about law and justice. The second section is about love and generosity. You see, he says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, of course, they heard no such thing from Scripture. What they had heard from Scripture, Leviticus 19, is love your neighbor as yourself. But they did a bit of faulty mathematics. They said, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, who's my neighbor? What about my non-neighbor? Oh, I don't have to love them, therefore I can hate them. This was behind the question to Jesus Who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that? He was answering a question. Your neighbor is somebody... Actually, a Samaritan was normally regarded as an enemy of a Jew. They were hostile to one another. 
That's the very context of that question. Who is my neighbor? They had concluded falsely that to love your neighbor permits you to hate your enemy, which is why this question of revenge has arisen in the first place, because you don't have to love those who you regard as your enemy. But actually, says Jesus, you regard not just your neighbor who may be your friend in love, but you regard those who persecute you. You treat your enemy in love for this reason, that you may be, verse 45, sons of your Father in heaven. And then he explains what that means. That is, you, you, you carry the likeness of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's the context of that statement. That you are to be indiscriminate in who you love in the way that God is indiscriminate in who he blesses. God actually blesses the bad as well as the good, the evil as well as the righteous, says Jesus here. And of course, that is a fact of life that we need to, to, to recognize. You know, he doesn't cause sunshine to rise on the good and a permanent cloud to sit over the evil. He doesn't send rain on the field of the righteous and the unrighteous next door experiences a drought. No, the unrighteous gets as much rain as the righteous. And it's very important we understand this truth. God actually does not favor, understand me when I say this, God does not treat Christians with favoritism. If a plane crashes with Christians and non-Christians on board, as many non-Christians as Christians die or survive. He does not treat us with preferential treatment. Christians get sick like non-Christians get sick. Christians die prematurely like non-Christians might die prematurely. Now you say, well, what in the world is the benefit of being a Christian? I'll tell you. The benefit of being a Christian is you have Christ with you and in you, in the situation, in the difficulty, in the tragedy, you're not alone. But he doesn't exempt us from them. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll be, from time to time, thoroughly frustrated with God. But you're frustrated if you don't understand the way God treats the non-believer as kindly as he treats the believer. And the point of this passage is to say, you need to be sons of your Father in heaven, and he causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and you need to not just love those who are nice to you, but equally to love your enemies and love those who persecute you. Now, of course, this, what I've just said now, has always been a problem to the people of God. It's a problem in Scripture all the time. I can give you a number of instances. It would be a rabbit trail to go down this line. But in Psalm 37, David asks the question, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that the righteous have a hard time? In fact, 
one of the psalmists, his name was Asaph. He wrote Psalm 73, amongst other psalms. And in Psalm 73, he says he almost backslid over the fact that God blessed the unrighteous as much as he blessed the righteous. He says this, I'll read it to you, Psalm 73, part of it at least. As for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he generalizes, you know, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from burdens, etc. And he says in verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In, gain, in vain I've washed my hands in innocence, because all day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. This is a man of God saying, why is it the wicked seem to have a good time and I have a bad time and everything seems to go wrong for me? Because God does not treat you with favoritism. Now, we don't like that. We need to get used to it. Otherwise, you will shake your fist at God many times in your life. Jeremiah raised the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 12. He says to God, I'd like to speak to you about your justice. God, I've got a problem with your justice here. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they've taken root. They grow and bear fruit. He's saying, God, why in the world are the wicked prospering? I have a problem with your justice, God. And God says, you read the chapter, God says to, to Jeremiah, what would you like to do about it, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah said, butcher them. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Well, that's a pretty healthy perspective. And then God says, no, I'll tell you what, I, what, what the word is, Jeremiah. If you are tired running against men, what will happen when I run you against horses? Jeremiah, if you think this is tough, it will get worse, and you are not exempt. Job and his friends all asked the same question. In fact, Job's friends said, God does favor the righteous, and therefore, Job, you must be unrighteous, even though nobody thought you were righteous. There's a secret life under there. There's a reason why things have gone wrong. And says Jesus here, that you are to love your enemy, those who persecute you, those who abuse you, those who take advantage of you, because your sons are your father. He actually is impartial and loves even those that act wrongly. And if law in this passage is the structure of society, and we believe in the rule of law, love is the lubrication of society. And that is what is to flow out from the Christian heart and the Christian experience and the Christian life. You see, the point of verse 40 where it says, if someone wants to see you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well, means if someone wants to take your tunic in a lawsuit and it's legitimate and he wins that tunic because it's deemed deservedly so, Give him more than he's asking for. Give him your cloak as well. What is the spirit behind this? It is the spirit of love for this person. 
Verse 41, if someone forced you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Interestingly, this actually goes back to the postal system. It began with the Persian Empire and then taken on by the Greeks and then eventually by the Romans, which is the day in which Jesus lived. And if a courier was carrying something a distance, especially if it was a government document or, or, or something that needed to go uh, to a different part of the empire, the courier had the right to insist that somebody carried a mile, and then they'd leave it and find somebody else. You carried a mile. That, that's how you got the mail delivery out. <laughs> now he says, if they force you to go one mile, which is their right, go two. Understand the need of the mailman, <laughs> the courier. What's the spirit behind this? It's love. Do we have rights? You bet we do, and the law upholds those rights. Do we have responsibilities? You bet we do, and love fulfills those responsibilities. That's to be the spirit in which we operate and which we relate. And then he says an important thing in verse 46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, why are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So Jesus, if you love people who love you, you'd make a good tax collector. There's nothing impressive about that. Christians loving Christians is not impressive in itself. Because tax collectors apparently love tax collectors. Bear that in mind. Next time you have a letter from the tax office, just send them your love. (laughs) If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that, said Jesus. If you just greet those who greet you, you'd make a very good pagan. And you know, sometimes, if I may say this, we talk very sentimentally about love sometimes. You know, it's a, it's a fuzzy feeling for people we like. I've preached in many churches in many cities. And I might go to a city and go to a church one day. And, and uh, you know, they, they all love each other in this church. They really have a great relationship. They enjoy being together. The only problem is down the road there's another church. And they do things a bit differently. And they don't actually like them at all. Then I get invited to go and preach in the second church. And, you know, they they love each other too. They have a great relationship. They enjoy being together on Sundays and they meet together during the week and things like that. But there's on the third corner of the same town, there's another church. And, you know, they're a bit wild. They're a bit crazy. And they don't want anything to do with them. And then I go to speak in that church. And, you know, they, they all love each other as well. And they just hug each other the whole time and run around each other and lift each other on the floor and all kinds of things because they're just loving each other and they're very expressive. But there's another church over here, a bit more staid, and they don't like them because they, they, they really are very staid and stale and dry. And I get invited to go and speak in that church. And, and they all love each other as well, but they don't like the first church because, you know, they have different doctrines. And, and they all say, you know, God gives us a wonderful love for each other. And they are kidding each other. Because you know something, in the same town there might be a rugby club in the middle of the town. And they meet every, every week and they love each other. They have strange ways of showing it, but they love each other. They like to, you know, break a few bones and then they go down to the pub afterwards and get a bit of beer inside and sing some wonderful songs. And, and, and they love the fellowship. And it's no different to the church loving each other in the church, says Jesus here. 
you know what happens when God really breaks in? The folks in the first church say, you know, we love each other, it's great, but that church down the road, we don't agree with some things they do, but they are people for whom Christ died. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love them. And the second church said, you know, those folks in the next church, we don't like them, they're, they're wild, but we love them, they're people for whom Christ died. And the third church say, and the fourth church the same thing, and the fourth church say back in the first church. And then what's even more remarkable is that they all say, you know, there's a rugby club in this town, and we love those people. How can we show them God loves them? How can we build them up? How can we minister to them? Do we love prostitutes? Do we? Do we love the people who live pagan lives totally separate from what God would have them live? Because this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, apparently it was said of the early church. This is not in the scripture. And while the early church, I mean the first few years, but in the early centuries of the church, it used to be said of the Christians, see how these Christians love one another. Well, that's, that's a great thing to have said because you and I know what Christians are like. Wonderful, Christians love one another. If you want to think an even better statement would have been if the people had said, see how these Christians love us. It doesn't impress the world that we come inside these doors and have a great time together. It only impresses them when we go out of these doors to minister to them. Uh, 20 years ago now, I was invited to the city of Boston, the United States, to speak at a pastor's conference held every year for about four days, about 3,000 pastors from all over New England, the six New England states, come together for this. And I've been asked to open each day with a morning Bible exposition, then they had sessions through the day. Another speaker was a guy from Argentina called Juan Carlos Ortiz. He was pastor of a church in Buenos Aires. He told us that his church was known as the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. And he said, and and I was really pleased with that description of our church. And I was the pastor, he said. One Sunday, he prepared a message to preach on the subject of love. I looked at all the Greek words, he said. I defined them accurately. But that Sunday morning, during the worship time of the service, as I was sitting Waiting to get up to preach, I had a very strong sense I should not preach my message. And when the worship leader said, now brother Juan Carlos will bring us his message, I came to the pulpit, he said, I, and I stood behind the pulpit and I said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is, love one another. Then he closed his Bible, went back to his seat on the platform and sat down. And there was silence for about two minutes. That's a long time when nobody knows what is happening. The worship leader leaned across and said, are we supposed to sing another song? He just sat there quietly. Then he got up, came back to the pulpit and said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. Went back to his seat. He said his wife sitting in the balcony thought he's flipped. (laughs) I knew it would come. After a couple of minutes more, he got up a third time. He said, brothers and sisters, my text is love one another. He went back to his seat, and somebody sitting over here in one part of the auditorium turned to a person next to him and said, I don't actually know you. 
Is there any way I can love you? Anything I can do for you? Somebody else turned to somebody else and said, is there something I can do for you? Somebody in the balcony turned and began to talk to somebody else. He said, in a few minutes, the whole church was live with people talking. And he said, we had 28 unemployed people in the church that morning. Every single one went home with a job. He then began to list other things. And I was making notes and I didn't get the, 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 the numbers down. But he talked about single mothers who are in the church. He said, every one of them went home with somebody committed to support them. And be a friend to them. And be a friend to their children. He said, if I'd preached my message on love... They would have thanked me at the end. That was a great message. Thank you so much. I love the definition of those words. That really helped clarify some things for me. But he said, at 28 unemployed people would have gone home 28. It would have gone home unemployed. And Juan Carlos Ortiz said this. And to be frank, most of the people in church couldn't have cared less. He said, now 28 went home with a job. He said, next Sunday I got up and I said, brothers and sisters, I have the same text as last week. Love one another. And people turned to each other and said, what can I do for you this week? He said, for three weeks I had no liberty to preach. Now, it upset a lot of people. He said, 300 people left the church. They said, we want you to preach. We didn't come here to hear you stand up and say, love one another. And he said, it was the best thing that happened when they left. Because they weren't interested in life. They weren't interested in living the Christian life. He said, after three months, he got up and he said, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given me a new text this morning. And they broke out in applause. (laughs) He said, my text this morning is love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) And there was a silence. He went back to his seat. Somebody got up, walked out to the door. Somebody else got around to another door. In a few minutes, everybody was going through the doors, out to the bus stops, out to the train station. Out to the parking lot. He said the parking lot was empty in about 10 minutes. People went home, went next door, and said, I'm a Christian, I'm your neighbor. Is there anything I can do for you? He said it was the week before Christmas, the worst time to do it. He said, My wife and I and our two daughters had presents we had for each other, they were wrapped. And we found incredible need in our street, and we went back and got our un opened Christmas presents, and we gave them away to other people. But he said it was the best Christmas we ever had. He said, we had talked and strategized about having an impact in our area, and nothing was working. He said, within a week or so of that, people began to phone their church and say, are you the church that helps people? Yes, we, we, we would like to help people. Well, I, my marriage is breaking up. My kid ran away from home. I don't have money to pay my rent. He said it changed the whole relationship with the community. Now, of course, that was a a divine moment. I'm not going to do it next Sunday. (laughs) Because that has to be a God moment. But I found that so challenging. Because that is actually what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and scribes. Whose righteousness was external. Just keep the rules. And he says, no, forget about that. Penetrate through all of that. Your spirit is one of love. Whether he's your brother or whether he's not. Whether he's your neighbor or whether he's not. Whether he's your enemy or whether he's not. Whether they persecute you or whether they don't. Love. And he finishes, verse 48, by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. That doesn't mean just be perfect as we would normally use that word, you know, no flaw. There are actually three Greek words that translate into the one English word, perfect. And the word that translates here is, is, is a word that means perfect in the sense of being, being put to the purpose for which it was made. Let me illustrate. If, if I take my pen and I were to write with this pen and you'd say to me, how is the pen? I'd say, it is perfect. It does what it's supposed to do. It, it works. Now, it's a, the cheapest pen you can buy. I get about 20 of these for, for $1.29. I mean, these are cheap. I don't buy expensive pens. I lose them all the time. But it's perfect. It may be chipped and half full of ink, as it is. Half, it's bitten all over the top here. It tells you something about me, doesn't it? But it's perfect for the purpose which it was made. When he says, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect, he's meaning, be as God created you to be. You were created to be in his image, his moral image, and the defining moral quality of God is, God is love. All the others flow out of that. If I have a screwdriver and I put a screw in a piece of furniture, you say, how's the screwdriver? I say, it's perfect. It does the job it's supposed to do. If I use this pulpit to rest my Bible, and you say, how's the pulpit? I say, it's perfect. It's the right height. It's the right size. It's just perfect. Now, of course, the, the screwdriver could be a, you know, a damaged, old, battered thing, but it does the job. It's perfect. This pulpit could be, as it is, cracked along the corner here at the bottom. But it's perfect for the job. If I took this pen and used it to stir my coffee, you can stir coffee with a pen. You say to me, how's the, the, the coffee stir? I'd say it's not very good because there's le- ink leaking out. It wasn't made for that. It's exactly the same pen. In one context it's perfect, in another context it's not. It, it's not, you see, the things you do. It's not perfection. It is being what God put you to be and saying, God, your God of love flow out through me. If I use a screwdriver to pick my teeth, and you say, how's that old toothpick doing? I'd say, it's not very good, I've just broken a tooth. It's not made for that. If I use this pulpit to rest my cup of coffee, my coffee would end up all over me. It wasn't made for that. It is not perfect for putting your coffee on. That's not what it's made for. So this use of the word perfection here is be the person you're created to be. Who were you created to be? You're created to be in the image of God. What does that mean? It means you're meant to express his character. What is his character? The, the backbone, the spinal cord of God's moral character is that he is love. Everything else flows from that. And the context of these verses is not only are we to be characterized by love, perfect as God is love, but especially with those people we don't like. Especially with those people who seem demanding of us. That's the context of these illustration uses. They demand your tunic, make you go one mile. Especially with those who do us harm, those who persecute you. You see, the test of our love is not how we get on with our friends and family. 
The test of our love is how we get on with those we don't like and those who don't like us. And some of us, right through this Matthew chapter 5, need to radically rethink our priorities and rethink our outlook and rethink our perspectives and rethink our relationships Because the Sermon on the Mount is about being radically different to the world by being radically true to the character of God. That's how we're different to the world. Not by being obnoxious and awkward. We're different to the world by being true to God and his character. Is law and justice necessary? Yes, it is. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that's the job of the law courts. God is a God of justice, that's just. But don't take it in your own hands. Instead, be characterized by love and generosity, that our attitude in every situation, whether hostile or friendly, is one of love. And that is not something that's natural to us. It has to be supernatural It is the Spirit of God filling our lives and out of our hearts that flows that love for the fruit of the Spirit is love because the fruit of the Spirit is the character of God. There may be some of us listening this morning. You say, wow, this sounds a bit utopian, a bit ideal but unreal. It's only real when the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives within you. And that's why fundamental and assumed to everything Jesus says is that you're in relationship with God. You've come on the basis of your confession of your sin and your need. You've been forgiven through the shed blood of Christ on the cross and you've been a recipient of the Holy Spirit who has come to live within you. And he now is flowing through you. And although we have the old nature with all its flaws to battle with, the love of God which is the primary theme of these verses, flows through us in blessing and benefit and building up of other people. In actual fact, when the ungodly have a good time, we need to say, thank you, Lord. You're so kind. The people are not kind to you. May your kindness win their hearts and bring them back to you. Don't begrudge it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we realize not only is your word and your truth radically different to the world at large, it's sometimes, sadly, radically different to normal Christianity. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we will have the mind of God. We will see things as you have revealed them. We'll know your mind. We'll know your spirit, the Holy Spirit, filling our lives. And working through us to love and bless and build up those that we are in touch with, whether They know you or not, whether they're Christians or not, whether they're antagonistic or not. We may be indiscriminate in our love as God in his infinite love and grace 
is indiscriminate. And the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the evil as well as the good. Help us, Lord, to love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.